And now, Dan Happel's Connecting the Dots. If tomorrow all the things were gone, I'd work for all my life. And I had to start again with just my children and my wife. I thank my lucky stars to be living here today. Where the flag still stands for freedom and they can't take that away. The men who died, who gave that right to me, and I gladly stand up next to you and defend her still today. Cause there ain't no doubt I love this land. God bless the USA. God bless the USA. Good morning, and welcome to Connecting the Dots with Dan Happel and. I have to tell you, uh, I had kind of a a great experience over the weekend. Two of my very good friends sent me completely different guys, sent me two completely different videos, and I watched both of them, and I thought, wow, these guys really do a good job of connecting the dots. Did I find out a lot of new information? No, I didn't. But it was presented in such a good way that I thought, let's play these two videos and connect the dots for a lot of people in ways that are very, very easy to understand and very straightforward. So that's kind of what we're going to do today. And uh, the first one is All Wars Are Bankers Wars, and it explains things that a lot of people just don't want to deal with, they don't want to understand. And do I hate all bankers and do I hate uh, anybody involved in uh, the banking industry? Certainly not. I One of my uh, very, very good friends uh, was a banker who was the head of uh, U.S. banks for uh, the area around Portland, Oregon. And he's also a brigadier general who was the head of the uh, Oregon National Guard. Uh, beautiful man, a very strong patriot, one of the best people that I know. But I have to tell you, they know how to play the game. They know how to uh, create a false flag event. And and I'm by they. I'm not talking about the people that uh, that are part of this that are unwillingly part of it. I'm talking the New World Order, the secret cabal the uh, group of people who I refer to as a power elite who are in charge of everything and everyone. And they control the politicians, they control the money, they control the media, they control academia, they control, control, control. And we need to look at everything that's happening today like I told Michael earlier, like detectives, we need to look at cause, and effect. We need to look at what happens and then why that might be important and how that leads back to something 
happening that wouldn't happen otherwise. There's also a lot of people refer to it as a Hegelian dialectic. Uh, and this is something we're going to be seeing with these programs today. Uh, Thumper, are we all ready to go with the uh, first one, the Bankers Wars? All set, ready to go, Dan. Okay, let's uh, let her rip, and then we'll do a short commentary, and uh, and then we'll start the second film. All right, here we go. Now, I want to share a story with you, and this is actually an article that I wrote over the weekend called All Wars Are Bankers' Wars. And I went in, I did a lot of research. It's posted to the front page of whatreallyhappened.com. I understand it's already gone viral. It's being reposted around the web. Uh, but I wanted to basically tell it to you here on the radio show. And it's a very long story. We're probably going to take the rest of the hour to do it. But it's something that you need to understand, that all of these wars and assassinations that we're told are crazed, lone nut assassins, or weapons of mass destruction or bringing democracy, all of them track back to the private central bankers as the initiating event. And the more you study this, the more you will realize all the wars are wars for the bankers, for the private central bankers. And I know a lot of people are going to have difficulty comprehending this, just how many of these wars we have fought as a nation were fought for no other purpose than to force private central banks onto nations that did not want them. So we're going to have a few examples so you understand why at this particular time in history the United States government is mired in so many wars against so many foreign nations. And there's plenty of precedents for this. Now... Going back to the beginning, the United States fought the American Revolution primarily over King George III's Currency Act, which forced the colonists to abandon their own government-issued currencies and conduct business only using printed banknotes borrowed at interest from the Bank of England. If you go back to the writings of Ben Franklin, direct quote, the refusal of King George III to allow the colonies to operate an honest money system which freed the ordinary man from the clutches of the money manipulators was probably the prime cause of the revolution. That's Ben Franklin. Now, our public schools don't teach that because you're not supposed to know that the bankers were really behind the American Revolution. After the revolution, the United States adopted a revolutionary radically different economic system in which the government issued its own value-based currency so that private banks couldn't skim the wealth of the people through interest-bearing banknotes. So the American Revolution was fought primarily to free the American people from King George III's Currency Act, which ordered them to conduct all business using printed banknotes borrowed at interest from the Bank of England. So the Bank of England was just, you know, raking in wealth from the labor of the American people in exchange for ink and paper. And that fueled the anger that led to the American Revolution. Your public schools don't spend a lot of time on that, but that was really what it was all about. So the revolution was over, the United States was born, but the private bankers are nothing if not dedicated to their schemes to acquire other people's wealth, and they knew full well how easy it is to corrupt a nation's leaders. Now, just one year after Mayor Amschel Rothschild had uttered his infamous, let me issue and control a nation's money, and I care not who makes the laws, private bankers succeeded in setting up a new private central bank called the First Bank of the United States, largely through the efforts of the Rothschild's chief supporter in the United States, Alexander Hamilton. Now, this First Bank of the United States was founded in 1791, and by the end of its 20-year charter, the First Bank of the United States had almost ruined the nation's economy while enriching the bank's owners. 
As a result, Congress refused to renew the charter and signaled their intention to go back to a state-issued value-based currency on which the people paid no interest at all to any banker. This resulted in a threat from Nathan Mayer Rothschild against the U.S. government. Quote, either the application for renewal of the charter is granted or the United States will find itself involved in a most disastrous war. End quote. Congress still refused to renew the charter for the First Bank of the United States, whereupon Nathan Mayer Rothschild railed, quote, teach those impudent Americans a lesson. Bring them back to colonial status. End quote. Financed by the Rothschild Control Bank of England, Britain then launched the War of 1812 to recolonize the United States and force them back into the slavery of the Bank of England's banknotes or to plunge the United States into so much debt they would, have, they would be forced to accept a new private central bank. And the plan worked. Even though the United States won the War of 1812, Congress was forced to grant a new charter for yet another private bank, issuing the public currency as loans at interest, the second bank of the United States. Once again, private bankers were in control of the nation's money supplied and cared not who made the laws or how many British or American soldiers had to die for it. So once again, the nation was plunged into debt debt, unemployment, poverty by the predations of the private central bank, and in 1832, Andrew Jackson successfully campaigned for his second term as president under the slogan, Jackson and No Bank. True to his word, Jackson succeeded in blocking the renewal of the charter for the Second Bank of the United States of America. And this was where that famous quote came from Andrew Jackson. Quote, gentlemen, I too have been a close observer of the doings of the Bank of the United States. I have had men watching you for a long time, and I am convinced that you've used the funds of the banks to speculate in the breadstuffs of the country. When you won, you divided the profits amongst you, and when you lost, you charged it to the bank. You tell me that if I take the deposits from the bank and annul the charter, I shall ruin 10,000 families. That may be true, gentlemen, but that is your sin. Should I let you go on, you will ruin 50,000 families, and that would be my sin. You are a den of vipers and thieves. I've determined to rout you out, and by the eternal God, I will rout you out. End quote. Andrew Jackson. Shortly after the charter for the Second Bank of the United States expired, there was an assassination attempt on Andrew Jackson, and it failed when both pistols used by the assassin, Richard Lawrence, failed to fire. Later on, Lawrence explained the motive for the assassination by saying that with President Jackson dead, money would be more plenty. So it was an assassination motivated by the interests of the bankers. Now, our public school system is as subservient to the bankers' wishes to keep certain history from you, just as the corporate media is subservient to Monsanto's wishes to keep the dangers of GMOs from you and the global warming cult's wishes to conceal from you the fact that Earth has actually been cooling for the last 16 years. So it should probably be no surprise that the financial dimension of the Civil War are not well known to the average American. It's portrayed in our history books and our popular media as an internal dispute over slavery. But in fact, it was a war with global implications. When the Confederacy seceded from the United States, the bankers once again saw the opportunity for a rich harvest of debt and offered to fund Lincoln's efforts to bring the South back into the Union at 30% interest. Lincoln remarked that he would not free the black man by enslaving the white man to the bankers and using his authority as president issued a new government currency, the greenback. This was a direct threat to the wealth and power of the central bankers who quickly responded. This is a quote from the London Times following Lincoln's issuance of the greenbacks. Quote, if this mischievous financial policy, which has its origin in North America, shall become indurated down to a fixture, then that government will furnish its own money without cost. 
cost. It will pay off debts and be without debt. It will have all the money necessary to carry on its commerce. It will become prosperous without precedent in the history of the world. The brains and wealth of all countries will go to North America. That country must be destroyed or it will destroy every monarchy on the globe. So goaded by the private bankers, much of Europe supported the Confederacy against the Union, with the expectation that victory over Lincoln would mean the end of the greenback. France and Britain seriously considered an outright invasion on the United States in support of the Confederacy, but they were held at bay by Russia. A little bit of history most Americans don't understand. Russia came to the aid of Lincoln's Union during this crisis. Now at that time, Russia had just ended their serfdom system, and they had a state central bank similar to the system the United States had been founded on. Now, free of European intervention, the Union won the war, and Lincoln announced his intention to go on issuing the greenbacks. Following Lincoln's assassination, the greenbacks were pulled from circulation, and the American people forced to go back to an economy based on banknotes borrowed at interest from the private bankers. So finally, in 1913, the private central bankers of Europe, in particular the Rothschilds of Great Britain, the Warburgs of Germany, met with their American financial collaborators on Jekyll Island, Georgia, to form a new banking cartel with the express purpose of forming the third bank of the United States, with the aim of placing complete control of the United States money supply once again under the control of private bankers. Owing to hostility over the previous banks of the United States, the name of this third bank was changed to the Federal Reserve in order to grant the new bank a quasi-governmental image. But in fact, it is a privately owned bank. It's no more federal than Federal Express. In fact, last year, the Federal Reserve successfully rebuffed a freedom of information lawsuit by Bloomberg News on the grounds that as a private banking corporation and not actually a part of the U.S. government, the Freedom of Information Act did not apply to the operators of the Federal Reserve. So 1913 proved to be a transformative year for the nation's economy. First, with Congress' passage of the 16th Income Tax Amendment and the false claim it had been ratified. Here's another direct quote. I think if you were to go back and try and find and review the ratification for the 16th Amendment, which was the internal revenue, the income tax, I think if you went back and examined that carefully, you would find that a sufficient number of states never ratified that amendment, end quote. That's U.S. District Court Judge James C. Fox in Sullivan versus United States, 2003. Later that same year, 1913, and apparently unwilling to risk another questionable amendment, Congress passed the Federal Reserve Act over the Christmas holiday 1913 while members of Congress opposed to the measure were at home. This was a very underhanded deal as the Constitution explicitly vests Congress with the authority to issue the public currency, does not authorize its delegation, and thus would have required a new amendment to transfer that authority to a private bank. But pass it, Congress did, and President Woodrow Wilson signed it as he promised the bank he would in exchange for generous campaign contributions. Now, President Wilson later regretted that decision. You've probably heard this quote before, but you're going to get it again. Quote, I am a most unhappy man. I have unwittingly ruined my country. A great industrial nation is now controlled by its system of credit. We are no longer a government by free opinion, no longer a government by conviction and the vote of the majority, but a government by the opinion and duress of a small group of dominant men. That was Woodrow Wilson writing in 1919. Now, one year after the passage of the Federal Reserve Act, 
World War I started. And it is important to remember that prior to the creation of the Federal Reserve, there was no such thing as a world war. Now, World War I actually started between Austria, Hungary, and Serbia, but quickly shifted to focus on Germany. Why Germany? They didn't start the war. Why was Germany the villain in World War I? Well, the real reason was their industrial capacity was seen as an economic threat to Great Britain. Great Britain's pound was already in decline at the time because too much economic emphasis was on banking and finance and not enough was uh, on agricultural development, industrial development, and infrastructure. It's very much like the situation we have in the United States right now. All the financial operatives, they want to play the Wall Street games, and other parts of the economy are being neglected. We've lost a great deal of our manufacturing. Our, we're not the agricultural exporter we used to be because everybody's over there at Wall Street playing in that giant open-air casino. Now, pre-war Germany did have a private central bank, but it was under strict control by the German government to keep inflation at reasonable levels and to make sure that all of the German economy was being properly funded, just like Putin did with their, state, their, uh, their central bank uh, about a month ago. Under government control by the German government, investment was guaranteed to internal economic development, and as a result, Germany had become a major manufacturing technological power. They were exporting products that Great Britain could not compete with. So in the media of the day, Germany was portrayed as the main opponent of World War I, and not just defeated, it was flattened. Now, following the Treaty of Versailles, Germany was ordered to pay the war costs of all the participating nations, even though Germany had not started that war. This amounted to three times the value of all of Germany itself. Germany's private central bank, to which German, the German government had gone deeply into debt to pay the cost of the wars, was allowed to break free of government control. That led to the massive inflation of the Weimar Republic, followed uh, you know, permanently uh, trapping the German people in endless debt. And money speculators were running rampant. And it led to these situations where you had literally a whole basket full of paper notes to get a loaf of bread. Now, when the Weimar Republic collapsed economically, it opened the door for the National Socialists to take power. Their first financial move was to issue their own state currency, which was not borrowed from private central banks. It was based on a unit of value, not a unit of debt. Freed from having to pay interest on the money in circulation, Germany blossomed and quickly began to rebuild its industry. It was an amazing transformation to see. The media called it the German miracle. Time magazine lionized Hitler for the amazing improvement of life for the German people and the explosion of German industry, and they even named him Time magazine's man of the year in 1938. And then once again, Germany's prosperity and freedom from a private central bank loaning the public currency at interest became a threat to other nations and other powers. I have a couple of quotes here from Winston Churchill that tells you what was really going through the minds of Europe in the years leading up to World War II. Quote, should Germany merchandise again, which means do business. Should Germany merchandise again in the next 50 years, we have led this war, World War I, in vain. That was Winston Churchill writing in the Times in 1919. Another quote, quote, we will force this war upon Hitler if he wants it or not, end quote. Winston Churchill in a 1936 radio broadcast. 
Quote, Germany becomes too powerful. We have to crush it. End quote. Winston Churchill in uh, November 1936 speaking to U.S. General Robert Wood. Quote, this war is an English war, and its goal is the destruction of Germany. Winston Churchill, autumn 1939 broadcast. So it was all about economics and profitability. Now, Germany's state-issued value-based currency was also a direct threat to the wealth and power of the private central banks around the world. And as early as 1933, they started to organize a global boycott against Germany to strangle this upstart ruler who thought he could run his nation without a private central bank. Now, as had been the case in World War I, Great Britain and other nations threatened by Germany's economic power looked for an excuse to go to war. And as public anger in Germany grew over the boycott, Hitler foolishly gave them that excuse. Years later, in a spirit of candor, the real reasons for the war were made clear. Quote, the war wasn't only about abolishing fascism, but to conquer sales markets. We could have, if we had intended so, prevented this war from breaking out without doing one shot, but we didn't want to. End quote. Winston Churchill to Harry Truman, March 1946. One more quote here. Quote, Germany's unforgivable crime before World War II was its attempt to loosen its economy out of the world trade system and to build up an independent exchange system from which the world finance couldn't profit anymore. We butchered the wrong pig, end quote. Winston Churchill writing in his book, The Second World War. Now, a little side note, we're going to actually step back in time to the years before World War II. A little bit of history a lot of Americans are still completely unaware of. And it involves a gentleman by the name of Marine Corps Major General Smedley Butler. In 1933, Wall Street bankers and financiers had bankrolled the successful rise to power of Hitler and Mussolini. Brown Brothers Harriman in New York, and they're still there. I saw them when I was there for the 9-11 anniversary. They were financing Hitler right up to the day war was declared with Germany. And these Wall Street financiers decided that a fascist dictatorship in the United States, based on the one Mussolini had in Italy, was going to be far better for their business interests than Roosevelt's New Deal, which threatened massive wealth redistribution to recapitalize the working and middle classes of America. So the Wall Street tycoon recruited General Butler to lead the overthrow of the U.S. government and install a Secretary of General Affairs who would be answerable to Wall Street and not the people, would crush social unrest and shut down all the labor unions. General Butler pretended to go along with the scheme but then exposed the plot to Congress. So they recruited Major General, Marine Corps Major General Smedley Butler to lead this coup d'etat because Butler was very popular with uh, the soldiers and uh, his image as part of this move would help convince the military this was the right thing to do. Now, to his credit, Major General Smedley Butler, remembering his oath to the Constitution, pretended to go along with the scheme but then exposed the plot to the United States Congress. Congress, then as now in the pocket of Wall Street bankers, refused to act. When Roosevelt learned of the planned coup, he demanded the arrest of the plotters, but the plotters simply reminded Roosevelt that if any one of them were sent to prison, their friends on Wall Street would deliberately collapse the still fragile U.S. economy and blame Roosevelt for it. So Roosevelt was unable to do anything about this attempted coup d'etat until the start of World War II, at which time he prosecuted many of the plotters under the Trading with the Enemy Act. Now, mostly it was glossed over. It was just a rumor, unfounded. It's wacko conspiracy theory. But in 1967, the congressional minutes of Smedley Butler's 
revelation to Congress of the coup. We're, we're finally released to the public. You ever see this movie, Seven Days in May, uh, Kirk Douglas and Burt Lancaster, about an attempted military takeover of the United States of America? It was based loosely on this story. But, of course, in the movie, the, the bankers being behind the Burt Lancaster character was completely removed from the script here. Now, Smedley Butler is also famous for writing a work called War is a Racket. And I would like to read you a quote from that. Quote, I spent 33 years and four months in active military service as a member of our country's most agile military force, the Marine Corps. I served in all commissioned ranks from second lieutenant to major general. And during that period, I spent more of my time being a high-class muscle man for big business, for Wall Street, and for the bankers. In short, I was a racketeer, a gangster for capitalism. I suspected I was just part of a racket at the time. Now I'm sure of it. Like all members of the military profession, I never had an original thought until after I left the service. My faculties remained in suspended animation while I obeyed the orders of the higher-ups. This is typical with everyone in the military service. Thus, I helped make Mexico and especially Tampico safe for American oil interests in 1914. I helped make Haiti and Cuba a decent place for the National City Bank boys to collect revenues in. I helped in the raping of half a dozen Central American republics for the benefit of Wall Street. The record of racketeering is long. I helped purify Nicaragua for the International Banking House of Brown Brothers in 1909 through 1912. I brought light to the Dominican Republic for American sugar interests in 1916. In China in 1927, I helped see to it that the Standard Oil went its way unmolested. During those years, I had, as the boys in the back room would say, a swell racket. I was rewarded with honors, medals, and promotion. Looking back on it, I feel I might have given Al Capone a few hints. The best he could do was operate his racket in three city districts. I operated on three continents. General Smedley Butler, former U.S. Marine Corps Commandant, and he wrote that in 1930. So, now moving forward here, as president, John Fitzgerald Kennedy understood the predatory nature of private central banking. He understood why Andrew Jackson fought so hard to end the Second Bank of the United States. So Kennedy wrote and signed Executive Order 11110, which ordered the U.S. Treasury to issue a new public currency called the United States Note. Now, Kennedy's United States notes were not borrowed from the Federal Reserve. They were created by the U.S. government and backed by the silver stockpiles held by the U.S. government. It represented a return to the system of economics the United States had been founded on, and it was perfectly legal for Kennedy to do so under the Constitution. All told, some $4.5 billion went into the public circulation, which eroded interest payments to the Federal Reserve and loosened their control over the nation. Five months after signing Executive Order 11110, John F. Kennedy was assassinated in Dallas, Texas, and the United States notes pulled from circulation and destroyed. Following Kennedy's assassination, John J. McCloy, President of the Chase Manhattan Bank and President of the World Bank was named to the Warren Commission. Now, I don't care how good a banker he is, he's not qualified to be investigating a murder, which is what we were told the Warren Commission was all about, to get the truth of the assassination. But we all know that the Warren Commission was there to cover up what was going on, and obviously we can presume safely that John J. McCloy's presence on the Warren Commission was to make sure the American public never got even a hint of the financial dimensions behind the assassination. So, as we enter the 11th year of what I am certain future history will most certainly describe as World War III, we need to examine the financial dimensions behind all these wars. Why are we here? Why are our children being killed and crippled? Is this another war for the profit of the private central bankers? And the answer is yes. 
Now, toward the end of World War II, when it became obvious that the Allies were going to win and dictate the post-war political environment, the major world economic powers met at Bretton Woods, a luxury resort in New Hampshire, in July of 1944, and they hammered out the Bretton Woods Agreement for International Finance. The British pound lost its position as the global trade and reserve currency to the U.S. dollar. There are indications this was part of the price demanded by Roosevelt in exchange for the U.S. entry into the war. Now, absent the economic advantages of being the world's go-to currency, Britain was forced to nationalize their Bank of England in 1946. The Bretton Woods Agreement, ratified in 1945, in addition to making the dollar the global reserve and trade currency, obligated the signatory nations to tie their currencies to the dollar. The nations that ratified Bretton Woods did so on two conditions. The first was that the Federal Reserve would refrain from overprinting the dollar, uh, basically as a means to loot real products and produce from other nations in exchange for ink and paper. It basically was an imperial tax imposed by the U.S. economic system on the rest of the world. That assurance of no overprinting was supposedly backed up by the second requirement, which was that the U.S. dollar would always be convertible back to gold by the U.S. government at $35 an ounce. Now, of course, the Federal Reserve, being a private bank and not answerable to the U.S. government, did in fact start overprinting paper dollars, which were sent to other nations around the world, and under Bretton Woods, they had to send back products and produce and, and raw materials at full value. And much of the perceived American prosperity of the 1950s and 60s was the result of these foreign nations having to send real raw materials, goods, produce, back to the United States in exchange for the, these little pieces of paper with ink all over them, because they were forced to accept these paper notes as being worth $35 per ounce of gold. Then in 1970, France started looking at this huge pile of printed paper notes sitting in their bank vaults for which real French products like wine and cheese had been traded, and it notified the United States government that they would exercise their option under Bretton Woods to return all those paper notes for gold at the agreed-upon $35 per ounce ex exchange rate. The problem was the United States had nowhere near the gold to redeem all those paper notes. So on August 15, 1971, Richard Nixon temporarily, nudge, nudge, wink, wink, say no more, suspended gold convertibility of the U.S. Federal Reserve notes. This Nixon shock, as it was termed at the time, effectively ended Bretton Woods, and many global currencies started to delink from the U.S. dollar. And it created another problem, because the United States had been collateralizing their loans money borrowed from other governments and uh, foreign investors with the American nation's gold reserves. And with the awareness that there wasn't enough gold to redeem all the Federal Reserve notes, lenders to the U.S. were starting to wonder, did the U.S. government have enough gold to cover, collateralize their outstanding debts? Foreign nations began to get very nervous about the loans uh, to the United States, and they were understandably reluctant to loan any additional money without some form of collateral. So what Richard Nixon did is he founded the environmental movement with the EPA and its various programs like wilderness zones and roadless areas and heritage rivers, wetlands, and all these other little different programs, which all took vast areas of public lands and made them off limits to the American people, who are technically the owner of all those lands. But Nixon had no concern for the environment, and the real purpose of this land grab, under the guise of the environment, was to pledge those pristine lands and their vast mineral resources as collateral on the outstanding national debt. The multitude of all these different programs was simply to conceal the scale of the land grab and collateralization of the American people's heritage. 
and it actually today covers almost 25% of the entire nation, is now locked up by these EPA programs and pledged as collateral on government borrowing. Now, with open lands, available lands for collateralization already in short supply, the U.S. government embarked on a new program to shore up sagging international demand for the dollar. The United States approached the world's oil-producing nations, mostly in the Middle East, and offered them a deal. In exchange for only selling their oil for dollars, the United States would guarantee the military safety of those oil-rich nations. The oil-rich nations would agree to spend and invest their U.S. paper dollars inside the United States, particularly in U.S. Treasury bonds, which would be redeemable through future generations of U.S. taxpayers. The concept was labeled the petrodollar. In effect, the United States, no longer able to back the dollar with gold, was now backing it with oil, other people's oil. And that necessity to keep control over those oil nations to prop up the dollar has dominated America's foreign policy in the region ever since. But as America's manufacturing and agriculture has declined, the oil-producing nations faced a dilemma. Like France, they've got piles and piles of these paper notes and treasury bonds piling up in, in their vaults, and there really wasn't all that much except real estate they wanted to buy from the United States of America. Europe's cars and aircraft were superior and less costly. In more recent times, America's experiment with GMO food crops has led a lot of nations to simply avoid buying U.S. agricultural exports. Israel's constant belligerence against its neighbors has caused the oil-producing nations to wonder if the U.S. could actually keep their end of the petrodollar arrangement. So oil-producing nations started to talk of selling their oil for whatever currency the purchasers wanted to pay. Iraq, already somewhat hostile to the United States following Desert Storm, demanded the right to sell their oil for euros in 2000. In 2002, the United Nations agreed that Iraq had a right to sell their oil for euros under the Oil for Food program. One year later, 2003, the United States reinvaded Iraq, lynched Saddam Hussein, and placed Iraq's oil back on the world market only available for U.S. dollars. Now, the clear U.S. policy shift following 9-11, away from at least attempting to appear to be an impartial broker of peace in the Mideast, to one of unquestioned support for Israel's aggressions, only further eroded confidence in the petrodollar deal. And even more oil-producing nations started openly talking of trading their oil for other global currencies. So over in Libya, Muammar Gaddafi had instituted a state central bank and a value-based trade currency, the gold dinar. Qaddafi then announced that Libya's oil was for sale, but only for the gold dinar. Other African nations seeing the rise of the gold dinar and the euro, even as the U.S. dollar continued its inflation-driven decline, flocked to the new Libyan currency for trade. This move had the potential to seriously undermine the global hegemony of the dollar. French President Nicolas Sarkozy reportedly went so far as to call Libya a threat to the financial security of the world. So the United States invaded Libya under the, the guise of supporting a popular rebellion. They brutally murdered Gaddafi, apparently because the object lesson of Saddam's lynching had not been enough of a message, imposed a private central bank and returned Libya's oil output to dollars only. The gold that was uh, supposed to be made into the gold dinars, as of the last report I could find, unaccounted for. Now, according to General Wesley Clark, the master plan for the dollarification of the world's oil nations included seven targets, Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, Libya, Somalia, Sudan, and Iran. Venezuela, which has started selling their oil to China for the yuan, seems to be a late addition. What is notable about those original seven nations targeted by the U.S. is that none of them are members of the Bank of International Settlements. This is the private central bankers 
private central bank located in Switzerland. That meant that those seven targeted nations were deciding for themselves how to run their nation's economies rather than submitting to the international private central bankers. Now, of course, the bankers' gun sites are on Iran, which dares to have a government central bank and sell their oil for whatever currency they choose. The war agenda for Iran is, as always, to force Iran's oil to be sold only for dollars and to force them to accept a privately owned central bank. Now, you have been raised by a public school system and a media that constantly assures you that the reasons for all these wars and assassinations are many and varied. We're bringing democracy to the conquered lands. We hear that a lot. When actually, the U.S. hasn't. The usual result of a U.S. overthrow is the imposition of a pro-business, pro-Wall Street, pro-U.S. dictatorship. Good example, the 1953 CIA overthrow of Iran's democratically elected government of Mohammad Mossadegh and the imposition of the Shah. Or the 1973 CIA overthrow of Chile's elected government of President Salvador Allende and the imposition of the dictator Augusto Pinochet. Another one of the excuses we'll get is we have to save the people from a cruel oppressor. That's the one they're using in Syria right now. Revenge for 9-11. That was a big one going into Iraq. And then later on, President Bush was caught on video saying, no, Iraq had nothing to do with 9-11. And behind all of them, that tired, worn-out, catch-all excuse for invasion, weapons of mass destruction. Assassinations are always passed off as crazed, lone nuts to obscure the real agenda. And the real agenda of the bankers is very simple. It is enslavement of the people by creation of a false sense of obligation. Now that obligation is false because the private central banking system by design creates more debt than money with which to pay the debt. There is no way out the way it's set up. It's impossible to escape as long as you're playing by their rules. And you need to understand, private central banking is not science. It is a religion. It's a set of arbitrary rules created to benefit the priesthood, meaning the bankers, and it is supported only because people believe this is the way it's supposed to be. It is a religion. It's a set of arbitrary rules created to benefit the priesthood, meaning the owners of the private central banks. The fraud persists with often lethal results only because the people are brainwashed into believing that this is the way life is supposed to be and no alternative exists or should even be dreamt of. Now this same approach the same brainwashing was true of two earlier systems of enslavement rule by divine right and slavery both systems built to trick people into obedience and both now recognized by modern civilization as illegitimate so now we are on the verge of a new era in history where we will recognize that rule by debt rule by private central bankers issuing the public currency as a loan at interest is equally illegitimate it only works as long as people allow themselves to believe that this is the way life is supposed to be but you need to understand something that's the core of the issue private central banks do not exist to serve the people the community or the nation private central banks exist to serve their owners to make them rich beyond the dreams of Midas and all for the cost of ink paper and the right bribe to the right official and the occasional assassination but behind all these wars and all these assassinations, the hundred million plus horrible deaths from all of these wars lies a single policy of financial dictatorship. The private central bankers only allow rulers to rule only on the promise that the people of a nation be enslaved to the private central banks. 
rulers who do not go along with that will be killed. Their nation invaded by those other nations still enslaved to the private central banks. The bankers themselves don't fight these wars. Their children are not in these wars. A nation tries to break free of the private central bankers like Libya. All the other nations under the bankers' control pile on and destroy them. This so-called clash of civilizations you are being told about by the corporate media, it's a really a war between banking systems, with the private central bankers forcing themselves onto the rest of the world, no matter how many millions must die for it. The constant hate-mongering against Muslims you see in the corporate media lies in a simple fact. Like the ancient Christians prior to the Knights Templars, Muslims forbid usury or the lending of money at interest because they saw in ancient times, like Rome, how these banking practices could destroy an entire society. And that is the reason our government media insists that Muslims have to be hated and killed and converted. They refuse to submit to currencies loaned at interest. They refuse to be debt slaves. That makes them a threat to the natural order of the world, the new world order of global fascist dictatorship. So, off to war your children must go to spill their blood for the money junkies gold. We barely survived the last two world wars. Now we're going into the third one in the nuclear bioweapon age. That is very dangerous. We have to ask ourselves, are the private central bankers willing to risk incinerating the whole planet to feed their greed? Apparently so. You as parents, as siblings, as spouses, need to ask yourself, do you really want to see your loved ones in uniform, killed and crippled, all for a bank balance sheet? But the whole point of this article, the whole point of what I'm sharing with you today, and this is all history, you can go out and hunt it down for yourself. Behind all the flag-waving, behind all the propaganda, behind the crazed, lone nut assassins, weapons of mass destruction, all of the modern wars this nation have fought are wars by and for the private bankers, fought and bled for by third parties unaware of the true reason they're expected to gracefully accept being killed and crippled for. And the process is quite simple. We've explained it before on this show. As soon as the private central bank issues its currency as a loan at interest, the public is forced deeper and deeper into debt. When the people are reluctant to borrow anymore, that's when the Keynesian economists demand the government borrow more to keep the pyramid scheme working. When both the people and the government refuse to borrow anymore, that is when the large wars get started. To plunge everyone even deeper to debt to pay for the war, and then after the war to borrow even more to rebuild. And when these horrible wars are over, the ordinary people have basically what they had before the war, except their graveyards are a lot larger, and everyone is in debt to the private bankers for the next century. That is why Brown Brothers Herman in New York was funding the rise of Adolf Hitler, because war is the bankers' richest harvest. We all need to recognize this is what all these wars have been about. Private central banking, enlarging their domain, imposing their will on nations that do not want it, imposing their system on the rulers of nations who do not want it. Bribery, blackmail, assassination, they will do anything to maintain their stranglehold on the productivity of the world's people. And as long as private central banks are allowed to exist, inevitably, as the night follows the day, there will be poverty, hopelessness, millions of deaths in endless world wars until the earth itself is sacrificed in flames to mammon. The path to true world peace lies in the abolishment of all private central banking everywhere and a return to the state-issued value-based currencies that allow nations and people to become prosperous through their own labor and development and efforts. Now, I mentioned the Knights Templars. Prior to the Knights Templars, Christianity, like Islam, forbade usury because Christianity, much of Orthodox Christianity, came out of Rome and they had seen firsthand 
what debt-based economies do, even to the Roman Empire. They'd seen it firsthand. So they had a ban on usury. And the Knights Templars were able to basically either bribe or blackmail the Pope to get a special dispensation that allowed them to, to rent money, is what they called it. They didn't call it usury. They called it renting money. A lot of modern predatory banking practices were pioneered by the Knights Templars. And they plunged Europe into hopelessly unpayable debt until finally French King Philip IV, otherwise known as Philip the Fair, came, did the only solution he could do. Because he understood as long as you believed in the rules of the bankers, as long as you played by the rules they created to serve themselves, you are hopelessly trapped. And so Philip thought outside the box, and I know he's demonized for it, but in looking at the history of the Templars, I, it was his last resort. He sent messages to all of the regions uh, in France, Secret orders on the same time, in the same moment, on the same day, all of the Templars were arrested. And their commanderies, which is what they called their banks, were broken into, looking for uh, looted wealth. They didn't find a lot of it. It was, all, it, was a pay, it was a paper empire, just like the Federal Reserve is. It's all based on paper. There's no, nothing of any real value there. It's all paper notes. And he sent the Templars to prison and execution, except for Scotland and Portugal, where the Pope and King Philip IV really didn't have a lot of control. I think that the governments of the world, looking at the situation, looking how close we are to seeing this current world conflict emerge into a full-blown global thermonuclear war, that maybe they need to start thinking about the wisdom of King Philip the Fair and say it's time to simply grab all these private central bankers all at the same time so they can't simply skedaddle from one nation to another and come back and, and try the same thing again as they will inevitably do, because these people are addicts. They're hopelessly addicted to other people's money. That's why we call them money junkies. When we see somebody who's, who's addicted to cocaine or methamphetamine or heroin, and we can easily see how they're destroying their home and community around them. Now we need to look at these money addicts and look at how they're destroying the entire world around them. And it's time for an intervention. It's time for us to become private central banking heretics, to stop believing that this is the way life is supposed to be, because it isn't. It isn't even the way the United States was actually started. And they're trying as hard. Look at the destruction of our nation. We used to be the world's greatest nation. Now the most generous estimate is we're down to number 16 and still falling. And yet, despite the destruction to our nation, its infrastructure, its children, its quality of medical care, the quality of its, of its manufacturing output, we still are compelled somehow to go out and force this same banking system onto the rest of the world at the point of a bayonet. Does that make any sense at all? Not to a rational human being. To a money junkie, yeah, it's perfect. But we're really at a crisis point in history. And the first step to resolving that crisis, to not let it go any further into a potential nuclear war, is to recognize that private central banking, ruled by manufactured illusion of debt, is no more legitimate a system of governance than ruled by divine right or ruled by slavery. We all need to recognize the true cause of all the pain and suffering and wars. It's not the terrorists. It's not Al-Qaeda. These are just distractions and set pieces put in front of your eyes so you can't see the very clear pattern behind much of modern human history. It's a war of banking systems with the predatory private central banks seeking to eradicate any nation and any ruler that would dare try and operate their economy outside the control of the private central bankers. That's the real cause for the war? Is it something you're willing to fight and die for to support these private central bankers? Is it something you're willing to let your sons and daughters and brothers and sisters be blown to bloody bits for so the money junkies can have their latest fix, just a little tiny bit more gold or a little 
larger number on the bottom of that brokerage statement so they can have today's thrill, their fix, their fix of money that is bought with the blood of your children? I don't think so. But the time has come to point out what really is the cause of all causes behind all the wars and suffering that our planet is having to endure and our people are having to endure. The common enemy of all humankind are private central banks issuing the public currency as a loan at interest. And as history will show, they will do anything up to and including global wars to keep their lock on yours and your children's future economic well-being and productivity. We're not a free society. Media will tell us that we're free, but we're not free. We are slaves. Our slave chains are made of paper, and that paper is the Federal Reserve note. Too few of our leaders have tried to stand up to this system of enslavement, usually with lethal results. But if all the people of the world at the same time stand up and say no more private central banks, it will come crashing down, just as slavery did, just as rule by divine right did, and then we'll be embarking on a new era in human history where the emphasis on social development is on the people and not on the money junkies. All right. Uh, that is the first part of our program but I, I want people to understand, now when we tie this into the second part of the program, you'll see how so much of what's going on in Ukraine, in the Middle East, uh, all the things that tie together, they're doing it again. The system is nearly uh, exposed as totally bankrupt. The bankers have played their hand too far again, as always, and the next round is to get us involved, embroiled in a war that uh, they can still profit from and divert us from the fact that the banking system is the reason for all the failures we have. Uh, Thumper, uh, let's go ahead and start that second film. It'll have a little bit uh, of time at the very end, and then I can kind of wrap up with that. All right, Dan, just a second here while I get this framed up, and we'll be on our way. Okay. Incidentally, um, <laughs> this film, I, it couldn't have come to me at a more fortuitous time because of all the things now that are happening and have been happening over the last couple of weeks. This really helps connect the dots. Here we go. David Sorensen from StopRoadControl.com. In this video I present to you truths and realities that are extremely difficult to comprehend. Information that will shock us to the core because it challenges everything we believe. It turns our world upside down and it reveals something so evil that it is almost incomprehensible. Yet it is the truth. If we want this world to become a better place, then we cannot afford to deny obvious realities. 
We must have the courage and the sincerity to face truth. I invite you to have this courage and sincerity when you watch this video. It will be difficult. It will be very challenging. But it will also expose something extremely nefarious in this world that every human being needs to be aware of. Several former members of the Israeli Defense Force have come forth because they are extremely concerned about what is going on in Israel. They testify how the military in Israel is the most advanced high-tech army in the entire world. They also reveal how the borders between Israel and Gaza are the most heavily secured borders anywhere on earth. High-tech sensors alert the Israeli Defense Force from the moment that even a small animal approaches the borders. Yet hundreds of Hamas fighters were not only able to approach the border, but they blew up the fences. They entered Israeli territory and started destroying homes and burning down villages and killing Israeli people without any semblance of defense by the Israeli military. Turns out that shortly before this attack, the government had ordered the removal of all military presence from that area. Hamas was literally given a free pass to enter and start their operation. In the next videos, you will hear former members of the Israeli Defense Force explain that something very, very, very concerning is going on in Israel. <laughs> תקשיבו רגע, אני שירתתי כסמבצית חיר במהלך מלחמת צוק איתן, אני שירתתי באוגדת עזה, כל השירות שלי היה תומכת לחימה בזמן מלחמת צוק איתן שאז הייתה באוגדת עזה. תקשיבו לי ותקשיבו לי טוב, אין מצב בעולם שיכולה להיות כזאת התקרבות לגדר. אוקיי? Okay? מבלי שאנחנו לא נדע מזה. התצפיתניות יושבות בבונקרים ארבע שעות, הן לא יכולות לעשות ככה. הן מול מסך. לא יכול להיות מצב, שום מצב, שהיו מעירים אותי בלילה על יונה, על חסידה שהתקרבה לגדר, על, 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 על מקק שעבר מתחת לגדר, היו מקפיצים את כל הגזרה. איך נכנסו עם טרקטורים? איך נכנסו עם טרקטורים? 400 איש ואף אחד לא שם לב. אוקטובר 7th, 2023, זה אפרת פניגזון, Apparently, Israeli defense forces that were supposed to be around Gaza were placed around the West Bank because of security concerns so that the, the Gaza envelope was left unoccupied with military. They say around 60 to 80 percent of that area was left without the IDF forces that were supposed to be there. A year ago, there was a military operation in Gaza to prepare for such events, and ongoingly there are trainings for these kind of scenarios. This raises serious questions for me, anyway, about Israeli intelligence. What happened? Two years ago, there, were, um, there was a successful deployment of underground barriers with sensors to alert exactly on these kind of terrorist breaches. 
Israel has one of the most advanced and high-tech armies. How come there was zero response to the border and fence breaching? I cannot understand that. Personally, I served in the IDF 25 years ago in the intelligence forces. There's no way, in my view, that Israel did not know of what's coming. A cat moving alongside the fence is triggering all forces. So this? What happened to the strongest army in the world? How come border crossings were wide open? Something is very wrong here. Something is very strange. This chain of events is very unusual and not typical for the Israeli defense system. The current government is highly corrupt in my view, while the previous one was no better. I don't care about having a popular opinion. I care about exposing evil forces wherever and whomever they are. So to me, this surprise attack seems like a planned operation on all fronts. If I was a conspiracy theorist, I would say that this feels like the work of the deep state. It feels like the people of Israel and the people of Palestine have been sold once again to the higher powers that be. At the same time, this is still very, very difficult to fathom. How come the strongest army the strongest intelligence, the most sophisticated intelligence in the world in Israel makes it possible for few hundred Hamas fighters to enter Israel and make all of this happen while in that area the Hamas fighters did not meet Israeli army or any defense or any protection or anything as if the Israeli government was planning to offer the Hamas fighters this whole area on a silver plate this you know is not logical Israel has the most sophisticated intelligence has a strong army the strongest in the Middle East and allow something like this so there is more more behind it Israel has sacrificed its own people sacrificed the civilians on the borders of Gaza took away the protection took away the army and allowed Hamas to do what they did the following footage was released by Hamas Here we can see them place explosives on the fences that are extremely heavily secured with high-tech but not a sign of Israeli response. They blow up the fences on several places. Here you have an aerial view of how they are breaking through and destroying it, the infrastructure. We can even see how they are literally entering onto Israeli territory with their vehicles full of armed soldiers. And not a single attempt of the Israeli Defense Force to stop them in any way. They literally received a free pass to enter into Israel. They can even drive on the roads of Israel. This is another video released by Hamas showing how they are able to blow up the security fences 
and enter Israel unhindered. understand that this is not some massive army invading Israel, it's basically a low number of terrorists. The incredible powerful military of Israel could have stopped them in a breeze, but they didn't. So what is really going on here? Why was there no response from the Israeli Defense Force when armed soldiers from Hamas entered Israeli territory, even blowing up the fences and going deep into Israel and starting to burn down villages and kill people and kidnap people. Why was the, the Israeli military removed from that whole area right before this attack? Why was the mainstream news media instructed not to be honest to the public and why did they wait for 12 hours to inform Israel? There is clearly something very, very nefarious going on here, a criminal operation at government level of the worst kind. The question is, what is their agenda? What is the purpose? I believe that the answer is given by this letter that was sent by the government coalition in Israel to Prime Minister Netanyahu. It shows that they demand an immediate invasion into Gaza and a complete seizing of control of that whole area that belonged for the past decades to the Palestinian people. And indeed we see that immediately Israel responds and does something that they have been wanting to do for decades. A complete all-out attack on Gaza where two and a half million innocent Palestinian people live. Families like you and me mommies, daddies, children, grandfathers, grandmothers, just beautiful people. They are being bombarded, they are being murdered en masse. This is homicide of the worst kind. And this invasion by Hamas is the perfect excuse to accomplish this. What every person in the world should know is that more than half of the 2.3 million people in Gaza are children younger than the age of 15. This means that Israel is now bombing more than 1 million young children. شامل وواصل في هذا المكان عشرات الصواريخ تقريبا خمسين غارة كانت فجر اليوم على هذا المكان على بيوت المواطنين ننقل لكم الصورة من قلب مخيم جبالة نحن الآن 
في الاثرانس تحديدا شهداء بالعشرات وجرحى هذا هو ما يحدث الان في غزه في مخيم جباليه تحديدا هذا سوبر ماركت رابعه سابقا The destruction that is being unleashed on two and a half million families, mummies, daddies, children, grandfathers, grandmothers, uncles, nieces. I use these words to get my point through. These are people. These are people who live there in Gaza and now Israel is wiping them out. They are destroying thousands and thousands of families under the excuse of a Hamas attack. On top of that, Israel cut off all water, power, gas and food from these two and a half million people. Here we can see utter darkness in the entire Gaza area. Hundreds of thousands of families have no drinking water, have no electricity, no gas and no food. What is really disturbing is that less than two weeks before Israel launched their attack on Gaza with the purpose of permanently eliminating it. Netanyahu showed a map during the General Assembly at the United Nations. This map is called the New Middle East. When you look at Israel, then the Palestinian regions have been completely removed. There is no sign anymore of any Palestinian presence on the map of the New Middle East that Netanyahu showed less than two weeks before they launched their attack on Gaza. With every false flag operation, it is always the same principle. Some entity wants to commit a horrendous crime but they don't want to be blamed for it so they have to use another entity to shift the blame to in this case it is very clear they use Hamas Hamas is supposedly the bad actor here and all Israel does supposedly is defend itself so now they have the right to do something which they have wanted to do for decades completely eradicate the whole Gaza Strip and commit horrendous homicide on the Palestinian people. The next question we then have is why would Hamas cooperate with Israel? In the next clip we probably find the answer. US Senator Ron Paul exclaimed in the US government that Hamas is actually an organization that is set up by Israel, financed by Israel, to work for Israel. You know, Hamas, if you look at the history, you'll find out that Hamas was encouraged and really started by Israel because they wanted Hamas to counteract Yasser Arafat. What Senator Ron Paul said is confirmed by a man called Ronald Bernard. He worked at a high level in the so-called financial elites the most wealthy and most powerful in this world who control the world theater behind the scenes. He explains how terrorist organizations are essentially funded by the same sources 
that also fund the organizations that supposedly fight those terrorists. Which is not surprising, considering they are involved in the flows of money. Those are your clients. You also have governments to deal with, multinationals, you have to deal with secret services, and what they now call terrorist organizations. You get all of the groups that are involved with the big money as clients. Then you start seeing the connections. So, they might be compartmentalized as you just mentioned, regarding knowledge. But because I am in the middle I see how they relate to another. You see the money coming from this place then going to that place, etc. You keep gaining information and thereby, an overview of what is really going on. So do you have to serve and keep all of those groups happy, including terrorist organizations? You were trying to keep everybody happy? Yes. My God. That was my job. Keeping all the balls in the air. Yes, indeed. So one of the things that I found out, I did not know that before, but now am I do is about secret services. You think they are there to serve and protect a people, country, etc. But they actually turn out to be the criminal organizations, to be more precise. The system is heavily so. We are talking about financing wars, creating wars, so basically creating a lot of misery in this world. So, lots of conflict. And then I think to myself, if only people knew what the world is really like, secret services will stop at nothing. Nothing. But they also have their flows of money, because if they are trading in drugs or weapons or, for that matter, people, all that money has to go somewhere. Everything has to be financed. You say if, but you could confirm they are doing this? All of them? All of them? You can view the full interview with Ronald Bernard on the website stopworldcontrol.com Bernard. He explains much more about what's really going on in our world, behind the scenes of the puppet theater that is put up for the public. Because it is a puppet theater indeed. This surprise attack seems like a planned operation on all fronts. אין מצב בעולם שיכולה להיות כזאת התקרבות לגדר, אוקיי? מבלי שאנחנו לא נדע מזה. ישראל has sacrificed its own people, sacrificed the civilians on the borders of Gaza. Since they started their invasion of the land of Palestine more than eight years ago, Several hundreds of thousands of people have been murdered by the Israeli forces. And as you can see on this map, they have gradually been stealing all their land, their farms, their vineyards, their homes, all their possessions. And then ultimately they locked up these people in Gaza, which is the largest open air prison in the world with the highest suicide rate in the world, because life is so unbearable there. There is something very important that we all need to realize concerning Hamas. Hamas was created so that Israel could play victim. Israel is the actual aggressor who invaded a peaceful region 
murdered hundreds of thousands of people, stole all their land, their homes, their farms, their vineyards, all their possessions, and locked them up in open-air prisons and in areas where these people are terrorized every day of their life. Still, a majority of humanity looks at Israel as if they are the victims. That is the success of Hamas. And this is how psychological operations work that are run by intelligence agencies to manipulate mankind. Here you see footage from Palestinian people before the invasion by the Zionists. These are no terrorists, these are no dangerous people, these are just happy families, just like you and me. A former soldier from the Israeli Defense Force explains how they literally terrorized these millions of people on a daily basis. What most haunts you and your conscience about what you did in your time as a soldier? For me, it's the routine way we control the Palestinians, right? A Palestinian can wake up in the morning and not know if he will be at work on time go to sleep, not know if soldiers will invade his home. We basically control the most simple and basic elements of life. It's designed to break down the population of Palestinians and show them who's in charge and yeah, humiliate we, them on a daily basis. Exactly. How, how can we make 2.5 million Palestinians in the West Bank to feel that they cannot lift their head up? We will make them uh, understand that we control their lives the segregated roads and the settlements and so, forth and so forth. They exist all around the occupied territories. Military activity, home invasions, patrols, digital surveillance, they exist here and they exist all over the West Bank. The difference in Hebron is that in a very short walk, we can see examples of all of it. All of it. All of we it. saw all of it. The United Nations says that 251 Israelis lost their life compared to 5,590 Palestinians that were killed between 2008 and 2020. A member of the European Parliament from Ireland, however, says that the numbers are much higher. More than 150,000 Palestinian civilians have been killed or injured in Gaza and the West Bank since 2008. 33,000 of those were children. But what is truly behind the invasion of the land of Palestine and the stealing of the land of millions of people and murdering and torturing them. What is the deeper agenda behind all of this? We find the answer when we look at the entities who are behind the establishing of the State of Israel. It is the family of the Rothschilds. On their own official website they brag how they are the ones who financed the rebuilding of Israel. They are the ones who made Israel possible. So who are the Rothschilds? And why did they spend billions of dollars to invest in the building of a new political and military state of Israel? The Rothschilds are amongst the most wealthy people in the world. Their fortune is estimated to be several trillions of dollars, that is several thousands of billions of dollars. That makes them basically 
the most powerful people in the whole financial and banking system of this world. They operate, for example, from within the city of London, not to be confused with London City. London City is the city that we all know. It is London, where people live and where tourists visit. The city of London, however, is a small area of one square mile within the heart of London City. The city of London is the financial center of the entire world. And there is something highly significant about the city of London. This small area of one square mile is a sovereign state. It is not subject to the laws of England, nor the United Kingdom, nor the royal family. On the contrary, the city of London actually rules supreme over them. The city of London is the continuation of what we all know as the British Empire. The British Empire attempted to gain world domination. They still essentially own a vast portion of the world, like Australia, Canada, New Zealand, several African nations and many more. The city of London is the headquarters of all the big banks in this world as well as the headquarters of Freemasonry. The crest or the coat of arms of the city of London shows two dragons and then the helmet of a knight with a wing of a dragon. The Latin creed translated into English means Lord guide us. So they show dragons and they say Lord guide us. The dragon in mythology but also in spirituality uh, for example in the holy scriptures represents the personification of evil that wants to deceive and rule over all of humanity. The ancient dragon is the symbol of Satan or the devil. It is significant that the city of London is surrounded by 14 statues of a dragon. So the dragon is the number one symbol within the city of London. This brings us to another element of the Rothschilds. They are known for their involvement in a religion called Luciferianism or Satanism. Baroness Philippine Rothschild often wore jewelry that depicts the symbol of Satanism, a horned goat. She even had jewels that simply showed the head of Satan. On this picture we can see Baron Jacob Rothschild posing in front of a famous painting called Satan calls his armies forth from hell. He poses alongside one of their favorite artists, Marina Abramovich. This lady organizes very strange parties for the elites. Here you see some images of these parties that are called spirit cooking. They basically celebrate the practice of human sacrifice and cannibalism. In the next video you can see a spirit cooking dinner organized by Marina Abramovich, one of the favorite artists of the Rothschilds who founded the State of Israel. I need to warn you, what you're about to see is extremely graphic and complicit and deeply disturbing.
On December 2, 1972, Marine Hélène de Rothschild organized a surrealist ball at the Chateau de Ferrières in France, one of their castles. These are some images from their party. It again celebrates human sacrifice, which is at the heart of Satanism. Here you can see more art from Abramovich, a good friend of the Rothschilds. She celebrates all the symbolism of Satanism, the, the snake, the devil's horns, even child abuse. In 2017, the Rothschilds chose an artist from among thousands of artists in our world to decorate their sailing boat during the Lasco project. From all the existing artists in our world, they handpicked one particular man, Cleo Peterson. Here you can see some of his art. It always shows dark entities that are torturing white figures. Always darkness torturing the light, evil ruling over good. He shows scenes of violent rape, violent murder, violent slavery, and violent suppression. It is highly significant that the Rothschilds picked this artist to decorate their sailing boat. At the beginning of this video I warned you that this would be extremely disturbing information. And I'm sure that most people are not aware that Israel was founded by blatant Satanists. So, but this brings us back to the original question. Why did they invade Palestine? Why did they erect the state of Israel? Everyone who is informed knows that there has always been an agenda for world domination all throughout world history. This is not a conspiracy theory. This is one of the most basic realities of human history. There has been one world empire after the other. And for some weird reason, there are many people in our time who dismiss the reality of an agenda for world domination, which is dazzling. It's almost insane to think that there would no longer be an agenda for world domination in our time, because this has always been the red line all throughout human history. The only question is who are the people today that aim for world domination? Well, there is for example the World Economic Forum who make it very clear on their own website that they are striving for global governance. They want to control the whole world. They also strive for internet governance and corporate governance. They want to establish governance over every aspect of human society. So here you have it, it is out in the open. Well, the Rothschilds are among the families who are behind the World Economic Forum, which is basically a public uh, entity that is backed up by the City of London and by these high-level financial elites. Now, the past decades there have been extremely disturbing revelations about what's going on within these uh, financial elites. The main theme that has been exposed by innumerable um, insiders and I mean surviving victims or eyewitnesses or former employees and even former directors of the FBI and the CIA and former police officers and detectives and commanders from the military and former agents and officers from intelligence services. All of these people have been revealing one same horrific reality.
They have been exposing to our world how there is an organized uh, system of child abuse and child trafficking and even child torture and child ritual sacrifice that is happening within these financial elites. There is, for example, the whistleblower Ronald Bernard. He was operating at the highest level within these financial circles and he was moving trillions of dollars. He exposed how at the very highest level of these financial elites, there is indeed this religion called Luciferianism. And he joined into their satanic masses for a while because there was a lot of fun. Sex, drugs and rock and roll, you could say. But then he was invited to partake into the ritual of child sacrifice. And he was promised that if he would join into that, he would receive unimaginable financial opportunities. He would become wealthier than his wildest dreams. Here is a short clip from the testimony of Ronald Bernard. But then at some point, I was invited, which is why I'm telling you all this, to participate in sacrifices. Abroad. That was the breaking point. Children. You were asked to do that? Yes. And I couldn't do that. Would you like to stop for a moment, by the way? No. And then I started to slowly break down. I lived through quite a lot as a child myself and this really touched me deeply. Everything changed. But that is the world I found myself in. What Ronald Bernard has revealed to our world is confirmed by an incredible large number of other whistleblowers. I am personally in touch with several people who came out of these elites and all of them say the same thing. And this brings us back to Israel. This brings us back to what is really going on in the Middle East. All these people who came forth from these financial elites testify that their ultimate goal is to set up a one world government, global governance, and they want the headquarters to be in Jerusalem. And this has an ancient spiritual reason. I won't go into that right now, but we have to understand that everything has a background. But they specifically want Jerusalem to be their headquarters. Now, for many Christians, this will be extremely shocking to hear, and I totally understand that, but I ask you to hear me out. Everything I present here is solid evidence. It can be researched by anyone, and all the facts are available for every person who has the courage to look at these facts. So why is nobody aware of this? Why is the entire Christian community worldwide, which consists of roughly 2 billion people, why do they support the state of Israel blindly? Let us go back into history a little bit. For many centuries, Palestine was a very peaceful region where Muslims, Jews and Christians lived in harmony with one another. There was no hatred, there was no war. This is something unnatural that is created by higher powers in politics and in the financial world. 
but these people had no issue with one another whatsoever. It's only when the Rothschilds started investing into establishing this state that hatred was artificially incited between different people groups. So after centuries of living happily in peace and in harmony, suddenly there was this invasion by forces that are called Zionists or Zionism. Zionism is indeed the philosophy or the movement of people who want to establish uh, a new Israel as the center of a one world government. In order to accomplish their goal, they however had to do one very important thing. They needed the support of the worldwide Christian community. They needed the churches on their side. So in the 19th century, before Israel was founded, the Rothschilds worked closely with several people in Christianity. They attracted a man called Cyrus Schofield. He was a convicted criminal lawyer, an expert in fraud and forgery. He was asked to create a new Bible, the Schofield Study Bible. This was the first Bible in all of history to contain hundreds of footnotes. In these footnotes, a new doctrine was introduced into the American Evangelical Church, which says that there was to come a new political military Israel and that that would be the place where the Messiah would come to rule the world. And they said that that would be the fulfillment of the promise uh, that God had made to Abraham. And that would also be the fulfillment of the promise that Christ would return to earth. This Bible was then spread all throughout America through the Moody Bible Institute. And it became the foundation for the current day evangelical theology. Nobody was aware that this Bible was directly funded by Satanists and that it served the agenda to get Christianity on their side for establishing a new Israel that would become the headquarters of their one world government. And again, I know that all this sounds outrageous to many people who have never heard this before, but you can research this. And I encourage you to do your due diligence. I've studied this for decades and I know what I'm talking about, but it's very difficult sometimes when you talk to people who are not informed, who have simply accepted a certain mindset, who have blindly believed that and who repeat it to everybody else without ever doing their research. But all this is historical fact. The Schofield Study Bible was published by uh, the, the Oxford University Press, which was owned by the Rothschilds. And this whole theology was first written out by John Darby, whose family owned the most haunted castle in the world, Leap Castle, where 150 dead bodies were found in the cellars and where satanic masses were held. John Darby used all kinds of occult terms in his religious writings. He was involved in many secret societies and occult groups. And he is the one who educated Cyrus Schofield, but John Darby was an employee of the Rothschilds. He worked for the East Indy Company. The Schofield Study Bible literally said that everyone who supported this new Israel would be blessed by God, and everyone who did not support it would be cursed by God. So fear and intimidation was used to force Christians to be on their side, and they succeeded. In our time, the vast majority of Christianity believes thoroughly that this new political military state of Israel is indeed the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. 
but they haven't got the slightest clue what's really going on here. The whole violent invasion into the land of Palestine where Muslims and Christians and Jews had been living peacefully together for thousands of years is based on a misunderstanding of the promise that God made to Abraham in the Old Testament. God told Abraham that he would receive land, that a great people would come forth from him. But one of the experts of the Jewish religion, uh, who later became the Apostle Paul, wrote to the Jews in his time, who were called the Hebrews, that Abraham essentially was not promised and was not looking for a stretch of desert. He was looking for a heavenly land built by the hand of God, something far more beautiful, far more profound, far more glorious. This was confirmed by Jesus Christ, who was the Messiah and who came to fulfill all the promises of God to Abraham and to his descendants. But he surprised everybody by saying, my kingdom is not of this world. He said, my kingdom is not visible with the human eye. My kingdom, he said, doesn't work with weapons. It doesn't wage war. He said, my kingdom is not on a geographical location on earth. He said, my kingdom is a heavenly realm. And you can only see it through the spirit of God. You can only enter it when you are born from above by the Spirit. And he said, my kingdom is among you. It is inside of you. So God is not interested in a political military nation that wages war and kills people. Jesus Christ is called the Prince of Peace. He's the one who removes all hatred and violence between people and who makes people brothers. That's why in the New Testament it says, in Christ there is neither Jew nor Gentile. There is no more hostility or division. There is one new man, one new creation in Christ. Those who accept Christ, they are the ones who can enter into this kingdom of God. It has nothing to do with politics. It has nothing to do with military warfare. It has nothing to do with hatred between one people group and another people group. That is in fact the exact opposite of this. But we've all been told something entirely different. We've been told by the Rothschilds through the C.I. Schofield Study Bible, which has spread all around the world and which was unquestioningly accepted by all of Christianity, that it is all about a political military nation, which is the opposite of what Christ said. He said, even to the uh, Samaritan women at the well for those who know what scriptures say. He said the time is gone, the time is over where people worship God in the city of Jerusalem. He said now the true worshippers will worship God in spirit because God is spirit and that's the worship that he longs for. And then the Apostle Paul explained to the Galatians, he said guys understand this. You guys are not children from the earthly Jerusalem. You are not children from, from something worldly. You are children. You come forth from the heavenly Jerusalem. The heavenly Jerusalem is your mother. It's a heavenly kingdom, Jesus Christ said. In the old covenant, there was a physical Israel, a physical Jerusalem, a stone temple. But 
in 70 AD that was all destroyed that was judged by the Almighty God and then in the New Testament it says that we are now the temple of the Living God he dwells in us we are his dwelling place and his spirit builds us as homes where God can dwell and through us he brings healing and deliverance to the world so we have two completely opposite mindsets in the time of Jesus the Jews wanted a political and military kingdom that's why the Apostles joined Christ that's why Jude who betrayed Christ followed him he expected Christ to restore Israel in a military political way and when Jesus didn't do that and when it was clear that he was going to be killed by the Jews then Jude betrayed him he thought this guy is not going to restore a political military Israel he's in no way anything that I thought he would be he's he's not going to be our world leader who will bring peace over all of humanity from Israel so Jude betrayed him and that caused Christ to be murdered the the Apostles also left Christ they were disillusioned but when the Spirit of God came on Pentecost all the Christians suddenly began to understand starting with the Apostles what Christ had been explaining to them this is not about a political military uh, land this is about a heavenly land this is about the reign of the Most High God in your heart where you are transformed on the inside where heaven comes to dwell in your heart and you become a completely different person not through a religion not through uh, something political or social or military or whatever but by becoming a child Christ said if you become like a little child you can enter into the kingdom of heaven so the promises that God had made to Abraham and his descendants were fulfilled in Christ God never spoke about the stretch of desert that would be his ultimate fulfillment he had something far more beautiful far more glorious he had a heavenly kingdom a heavenly nation people all around the world who love God and here we come to a, an incredible misunderstanding concerning what it means to be a Jew or an Israelite or a descendant of Abraham who was Abraham what is a real Jew listen carefully even if you're not a Christian even if you're not religious in any way this is extremely interesting and fascinating and it explains the core of what's going on in Israel and the agenda for world domination so this relates to all of us no matter our background and beliefs so please keep watching because a lot more will be revealed Abraham was somebody who was faithful to the creator of life he did not join into the demon worship and the human sacrifice and all the sorcery and magic of his surroundings he remained faithful to the creator of all life that's why God revealed himself to Abraham and said Abraham you will be the father of all the people uh, throughout all of history who will be just like you they will walk in your footsteps in a way that they will also love me despite evil surroundings in their culture they will be faithful to me despite perversion and wickedness in their nation he said a great people will come forth from you and they will come from every tribe every tongue every nation and this will be called Israel Israel means Prince of God or in other words royal child of the creator of heaven and earth 
So Israel was never meant to be a political nation. It was that for a short period to show that that doesn't work out because the people of Israel who came after Abraham, they left the creator. They turned back to darkness and they went back to worshiping demons and human sacrifice. You can read that all throughout the scriptures. And God kept sending his prophets to call them back to him, but they always rejected and even murdered them. So God showed a political nation is not my idea. This is not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about physical seed. I'm talking about spiritual seed. I'm talking about people who are circumcised in their heart, who walk with me in the midst of darkness, who are faithful to me, surrounded by wickedness, who walk in faith, even though their eyes can't see and their mind can't understand. They keep trusting me. That is what it means to be the seed of Abraham. We are like like him we walk like him we live like him we walk in his footsteps and that's why the prophet Isaiah and the Apostle Paul clearly said that only a very small portion of ancient Israel was truly Israel only those who were truly faithful to God the vast majority of ancient Israel turned their back to God and were just as wicked and satanic as the other nations who practiced human sacrifice and demon worship and all kinds of magic and sorcery so Abraham is the father of faith. His seed is not genetic. His seed is spiritual. That's why Christ said the people who listen to the creator, who listen to God and who do what he says, they are the children of God. They are my brothers and sisters. And that's why the apostle John said, it's impossible uh, to become a child of God by ways of genetics or lineage or by the will of a man. You become a child of God by accepting Christ whom he sent, by believing what God says. Well, in the time of Christ, you had Jews who accepted Christ and you had Jews who rejected him. The Jews who rejected Christ were the ones who wanted a military political kingdom. They wanted to defeat the Romans and establish a military nation that would rule the whole world. They interpreted the scriptures in a very earthly way why Christ said it's only by the Spirit of God that you can worship God and that you can understand it and that's why the Apostle Paul also said we have the mind of Christ we have the mind of the Spirit who reveals the mysteries of God and the mystery of God was that the promises that he had been making were fulfilled in Christ and that's also why it says that all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ not in a political military nation so this is in a nutshell what the Bible really says. This is also the core, the heart of the Christian faith. God dwells in the heart of man. He doesn't dwell in a temple built by man. He dwells in the heart of man, which is built by the Spirit of God. Our life, our mind, our, our thoughts, our actions, our entire existence becomes a home for the Creator to express His love and to show His love to the rest of humanity. And there is no racism in God. He is not a respecter of persons. 
the mindset that being a Jew means that you have some kind of a genetic connection to Abraham, that makes you a racist because people who think that way say the Jews are better than the rest of humanity. They have the right to slaughter and murder and torture and imprison and rob everybody else because they are the chosen people. And that is exactly how the Pharisees were thinking. In scripture we can read that they talked about other nations as being dogs. They said those people are animals. And now with the attack of Hamas uh, on Israel, which is not really Hamas, you know, Hamas is um, financed by the same people who finance Israel. But the Israeli defense minister literally said those Palestinians, they are human animals. So that is the racist mentality of these people who think that being a Jew means that you are better than other people. אנחנו מטילים מצור מוחלט על העיר עזה. אין חשמל, אין מזון, אין מים, אין דלק. הכל סגור. אנחנו נלחמים בחיות אדם ואנחנו נוהגים בהתאם. There is a vast contrast between what Christ and the scriptures say and between what was introduced into Christianity. Basically, the doctrine of Zionism goes back to the time of the ancient Israelites who wanted a political military Israel that would rule over the world. That's basically that literal interpretation. And they are the ones who murdered Christ. They are the ones who killed all the Christians. They are the ones who, who slaughtered the apostles because they did not want the kingdom of heaven in the heart of man. They wanted the political military fulfillment of the promises of God. So they rejected Christ. They rejected what the apostles preached. They rejected everything that the scriptures truly said. So this is where we come at the core of the issue. And I hope that you are still with me. I've been real fast explaining this as concise as I can. But I invite all the Christians who are watching this video to study the scriptures sincerely. Read the letter of Paul to the Galatians. Read what Christ in the gospel said about the kingdom. He never spoke about a political military reign. He rejected that fiercely. Okay? And Jude betrayed him for that. The Christian church has been severely subverted. Instead of being faithful to what Jesus Christ said, whom they claim to believe, follow and worship, they actually completely diverted from everything Christ has said and they went back to what the Pharisees said. We need a military political Israel. When we look at the modern day state of Israel, it becomes crystal clear that it has nothing whatsoever in common with the Israel that God is talking about in scripture. In scripture, God says that Israel prince of God, royal children of God, is his family, it's his people, those who love him, those who worship him, those who are faithful to him. It is his kiddos, his beloved ones, the apple of his eye, the people that truly belong to God. When you look at the current state of Israel, it is one of the most atheist states in the whole world. The vast majority of Israel fiercely rejects the existence of God. They say that there is no God. Many of them are Freemasons. Israel in its short existence has become the, one of the capitals of sexual perversion worldwide with the biggest pride parade 
in the Middle East. It is a safe haven for pedophiles. People who are wanted by the law for child abuse can flee to Israel and they will not be prosecuted there. So this is very powerful evidence that Israel has nothing to do with the true Israel that God was talking about, which is literally the exact opposite of this. God says, love your enemies. Uh, we are all brothers. He calls people to live in peace with one another. Israel is the exact opposite of this. It kills millions of people. It murders them. It tortures children in prison. This is unfathomable. There is no connection between this political military violent state, which was financed by Satanists, uh, and which is a capital in the world of sexual perversion and one of the most atheist nations in the world, and what God says that Israel is. It is literally the exact opposite. Let me show you something. This is alleged $1 note. How do you know that it's real? Well, because it says so here, right? $1. So you can rest assured that this is a genuine $1 note. That's exactly what's going on with Israel. It's not because somebody assumes an identity or uses a certain name that they are the real thing. This is an authentic $1 note. It doesn't only say $1, but it has all the characteristics. When we look at Israel, we need to look at the characteristics, not just be fooled by the name Israel. Anyone can say, I'm an Israelite, I'm a Jew or whatever. We have to look at what are the hallmarks of the true Israel, according to the Torah, according to the Old Testament and the scriptures. And then we have to look if we can see those characteristics. That's how we determine if something is real. You can't just go around and say, look, this is real because it says so. Using the Star of David and using the name Israel doesn't make you Israel. This is something we really have to understand. And then another key insight I need to share with you is that this is being presented to humanity as an everlasting conflict between one people group and another, Israeli and Palestinians. But that's not what's really going on. As we saw, the entities who are behind both Israel and Hamas, they are the ones who have caused this conflict. They are the ones who initiate this war. Essentially, this is a war between the deep state and all of humanity. And both the Israeli and Palestinian people are victim of this. We are all being fooled by a very powerful and very cunning group of people who operate behind the scenes and who pull on the strings. So this is the mystery of Israel that has been solved. It, it has nothing to do with what the ancient scriptures say about what Israel is. It is diametrically the opposite of that. It was founded and financed by blatant Satanists who have an agenda for world domination and who want to have the support of the billions of Christians from around the world so that they can succeed in their agenda. 
I understand that it's extremely shocking if you hear this for the first time. But all this information can be researched. You can find more and more evidence for this when you do your due diligence. I want to invite you to become part of building a better world where we don't support entities that create war and murder hundreds of thousands and even millions of people. We are not here to make this world a place of horror and terror and fear and destruction. We are here to bring love, justice and goodness amongst all of humanity. This is our purpose. That's why this film was made, to expose an extremely nefarious agenda. Their plan is to incite world war, so that they can use that as an excuse for establishing a one world government, which would then supposedly bring peace. We have the choice to fall into this trap or to open our eyes and have the courage to stand up for what is right and prevent their agenda. I invite you to go to the website stopworldcontrol.com and sign up for our emails. You will learn a lot about the official agenda for world domination and what you can do to be part of preventing this plan. The future is bright and beautiful if we rise up and if we do what it takes to make this world a place of goodness, a place of hope, a place of happiness. Okay, uh, Thumper, <laughs> go, we got good timing on this, but uh, uh, <laughs> I, I, I want to do a little wrap up here with uh, uh, Michael. I know he's still he'll, he's still with us. We had a little bit of a chat discussion going on uh, behind the scenes. Michael, uh, what we're talking about with this, and is, you know, we're talking about education, but we were talking about the the fact that the uh, republicans uh nominated a new speaker of the house that uh doesn't exactly represent uh what we believe freedom is all about uh, that's an understatement but uh uh we had a discussion going on kind of behind the scenes and all i can say is that we, we know that Times are going to be tough. We know that we're fighting the forces of evil. We know that we are fighting uh, something that is very dark and evil, and it is going to be a bitch trying to get uh, through this and fight our way through it. But the fact is, what we are doing with programs like yours and Thumpers and mine we are here to try to bring truth to people and educate people any way we can. And uh, the truth is, we are doing a good job because our job is to, to uh, convince one person to look behind the curtain, one person to uh, turn over the, the uh uh, reality of the rabbit hole and get connected and start talking to other people. That's 
our absolute obligation is that. Well, we're doing that by the thousands, maybe the millions. And the world is so much more tuned in today than it was even six months or a year ago. And uh, I think we hit the tipping point about a year and a half ago. Thumper, um, you, you, I think you are one of the most incredible people I know. You are so dedicated to this. You are such a soldier uh, in the trenches, and I am absolutely floored that I can have such wonderful friends as you and Michael and be part of this to try to educate the American people and, and people around the world, for that matter, because we have followers all over the world. Okay, Michael, what do you uh, what what do you have any uh, passing thoughts that you want to share? Yeah, but I'm going to defer to uh, one of our founding fathers. <clears throat> time to time, the tree of liberty must be watered with the blood of tyrants and patriots. So time to time, you must close the books and pick up the rod, pick up the club, and do what's necessary. And right now, I think we've pretty much run out of time to educate anybody because, and I think we've just, you know, we, we there's something else that needs to be done. And uh, I, whether it goes to the gun or not, I don't know about do we call for another second January 6th? Uh, do we need a 10 million man march on, march on Washington? Uh, I think that would do it. It doesn't have to be violent, but I don't know if we got the people that have the courage or the will for the ability to do that anymore. So, I'll, I mean, you're an educator, I'm an educator, Thumper's an educator. Well, as we all reiterate, we try to inspire people to get involved. But right now, I think that with the, with this slap in the face with Emmer, this is, I mean, this is just a big middle finger to the everything. Gates gets, gets up there and gets rid of McCarthy. And now we got someone worse. It's just unconscionable. I can't see how we get out of this peacefully. I just can't see it. I pray for something else, but I can't see it. And I just, I don't know how we fight, not just the enemies within the gate, but the enemies that are pouring in over the gate and coming in. It's, it's Michael, I, I, Michael, I think you said something important. We need, we need to have faith. We need to pray. I'm not saying that we need to roll over and let this happen. I do not believe that. I believe that we have to have the dedication and the desire to, to bring truth to the world and to stand up for what we believe in. I no question about that. But I think that the key is our faith in God and our, our Lord and Savior, that we understand that without His blessing, without doing what His, uh, His work is, we will go nowhere. And that's where we need to understand. We need to recommit ourselves to the trust in Him 
And he will bring us judgment and discernment. And that's when we make our decisions. And, you know, whoever, whatever that is to you, Michael, or to me or to Thumper, it's going to be a personal thing because he'll speak to our heart in a way that we can understand and it will give us uh, motivation to do what we believe is right. Um, and I think that's strictly a matter of faith. I really do. Thumper, what do you think, my friend? Well, I was just looking at this. Uh, Emmer, where the hell did he come from? And secret ballot. Okay. Uh, I've had enough of secret ballots and, uh, you know, secret vote counts and all this other nonsense. Uh, and uh, uh, as as that goes, you know, it, I, I, I reiterate my position. I'm not playing the game anymore. I'm out. Right. You know, right. uh, they can, they can, they can, they can elect Hillary. I don't give a flying flip. All right. It doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. What matters is what's in people's hearts and whether or not you want to stay in and play the game. If you engage this nonsense, you are playing their game. Let's move on. Mm-hmm. Amen. Amen, brother. That's uh and that is what is in everyone's part if they actually admit that they you know they understand we are screwed if we continue down this path we cannot play their game there are different approaches to how we battle that but we definitely need to battle it there's no question about it we need to say absolutely no more not in our house not in our time well, uh, uh, guys, uh, I, I got, I got, I got an answer just uh, real quick. Uh, sure, Michael says, uh, "Move on to what? What do you want? Move on." Yeah, you are free, my friend. You are free. You don't need anybody's permission to do jack squat. Righteously move on and leave them behind, because you and I and everybody out there, we're free. We are free and we only allow them to have control over us. That's and, that's it. And and Michael, what you do to move on is what God tells you to do. It's just that simple. If you are committed to your faith, he'll give you, he'll tell you what you need to do. Move on in God's name. Yep. Absolutely. Okay, gentlemen, that was, we're a little over. I see Digga 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 Dan is on for his program. Uh, Dan, I'm sorry, we kind of went into your time a little bit, but we just did a, a powerful uh, series of videos. There, One of them is quite old. The other one is quite new. Uh, Thumper had played the latest one, the last one on his program a few days ago. Um, it just, it just seemed timely to bring all this together because the bottom line is, is we are being led like sheep to the slaughter and it's time to kick down the fence and get out of the pen and be part of the solution. And Dan, that's, uh, that's why you're here as well, my friend. Well, the problem is they want to keep dragging me back into the pen. <laughs> well, they always do. It, that's that's the key to us. Slavery is to bring us all back into the pen, but we can't allow that to happen.
From the lakes of Minnesota To the hills of Tennessee Across the plains of Texas Oh, from sea to shining sea From Detroit down to Houston New York to L.A. Where there's pride in every American heart And it's time we stand and say Cause there ain't no doubt 